Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, and we are here to do a special episode on personal tokens. Guys, can you please introduce yourselves and what got you into personal tokens and in what capacity are you working on it? Maybe Simon, you can start. Yeah, hey. Um, so currently, um, you know, I've, I've been in the blockchain space for a while, primarily working on tokens and tokenization and the music industry um, as two separate things. Primarily programmer, but I've also written a lot and shared a lot of ideas. I've been in space now for several years. With regard to personal tokens, um, I think this was one of the ideas that got me into the space for like one of the reasons that got me into working on, on blockchains back in the day. And this was, you know, at the end of 2013 when I saw what was happening with altcoins and just being fascinated by the idea that we could create any kind of currency or token or personal coin or any coin for that matter that represents different network effects, including people's currencies. And so at the end of 2013, I published a blog post that said, um, in 10 years time, everyone will have their own personal currency. And I was just fascinated by the idea of what could happen when we unlock new networks of value, um, including personal tokens. So that's what I, that's why I got into the blockchain and why I've been building stuff in the space for the past few years. And it's still an interesting idea to me and something that needs to happen. And I'm glad um, other people have picked up on the trend and experimented in different ways, both in the blockchain space and not. Thanks uh, for having me, Eric, and uh, really awesome to be here with Simon as well, uh, who has been one of the inspirations for me to enter the blockchain space. I was actually an economist for the biggest part of my early career. I studied economics and was on my way to get a PhD, but then I discovered blockchain and especially these kinds of new applications where you can actually capture attention and network effects, digital assets. And that fascinated me enough to drop out of that PhD program I was in and start building. And ever since, I've basically just had my head down building blockchain projects. And the first one was a curated feed of people nearby that helped you find interesting networking and dating opportunities in your local environment where the filter was actually steamed like voting mechanism. And uh, I kind of realized through this project that what really got people excited was the possibility of having their own personal token. We tested this product that we built at that time and people kind of liked it, but it didn't really take off. But when we mentioned that it's actually quite easy to make your own token right now, that's what got people, you know, sparkle eyes. And that's when I realized this is something I should explore. And this was also a time when I saw a lot of personal tokens being launched out there by artists, entrepreneurs, freelancers, they were popping up. And often there was this pattern that there would be an artist or creator or YouTube influencer who would say, you know, I'm going to launch my own token. And everyone who gets that and buys me, uh, basically sends me one of those, they will get something in exchange. And in the case of an artist, that would be a painting or it's a YouTube influencer they would say, you can get a placement of your product in my YouTube stream. And that idea seemed to be ripe for the time. And 
So a lot of people launched tokens, but there was always this one problem with those tokens that they were not liquid. You couldn't really buy these tokens. You couldn't really trade these tokens. You basically had to know the token creator. And so that's when I connected the research that Simon has been doing on bonding curves, a new way to mint tokens that are always liquid with this stream of consciousness that was leading into the direction of personal tokens and built Convergent, which is the project that I'm co-founding with my partner, Logan. And there it's easy to now launch your own token that is immediately liquid and tradable thanks to buying curves. Cool. So before getting into the particulars, I want to just make sure we really have a concrete version of what, what Utopia could look like. Can one or either of you or both of you take a stab at why this is so exciting? What does the Utopia uh, look like and what, what a world could look like with, with personal tokens at scale? And maybe some things that we didn't even intend. I think for me, one of the reasons why I found the idea of personal tokens such an exciting idea was simply because we could imagine ways to give people agency and empower them that just weren't possible before. Um, you had people in different parts of the world that didn't necessarily have access to sufficient financial infrastructure, um, sufficient commu communities that could help them, um, sufficient ways to get an education and the prospect of being able to fund or like funnel funding towards individuals that had promising careers all over the world just seemed like a very empowering idea that you could say, Hey, this is a promising individual. I just saw them sing something on YouTube. What if there is a way in which I could invest in them and, and also share in their success, whether it's, you know, seeing them succeed or actually a financial reward in return. And I think that to me still feels like a utopia, the aspect that we could more easily, you know, empower and fund people to become the people they want to be. And I think that would be, you know, ideal, I feel. Yeah, I, I agree. And I see an additional side to it. On the one hand, it's true that this could be a kind of fundraising tool for people and a kind of upgraded web three version of Patreon or Kickstarter where you basically just collect donations, but the people that support you don't really get anything tangible in return or nothing tradable at least. But then there's also this other aspect, which is the creator can use a token to make other people not just pay him or her, but also make them do certain work. And so there's another pattern that also is emerging with personal tokens. That is people launching their token and saying, I have now, let's say, 21 million of those. And I'm just going to send those to people who do something for me. And so it's not so much of a fundraising tool, but more like a work raising tool, where instead of mining the coin, you have to do certain tasks that the personal token creator lists on their website. That's also a cool, I think, utopia, a new tool for connecting with your audience and kind of aligning incentives with people and making them do stuff that's good for you and hopefully good for the projects that make the world better. To understand better, do you mean like, because I think in some circumstances it's, it's a great feeling in like the Patreon or subscription model to just be able to receive some form of collectible for being or helping or aiding this person. Is that what you have in mind? That's one way you could say, yeah. And mm -hmm. in, right now in Patreon, you get access if you pay and if you are a supporter. In, in a token, a personal token model, you could also imagine a creator just saying, you know, if you like my Facebook 
post or my YouTube video, I will send you a token in exchange. It's kind of a way to pay people for their attention. And then you can make all these kinds of schemes. There's actually an artist that launched his own token and he gives tokens to people who uh, mention him on Twitter or who invites him to a conference talk. Why is it so important that this is on blockchain at all? Do you, you're involved crypto. Do you need, could this be done without crypto? It, it has been done without crypto in the past. One of the projects that I followed that is still ongoing is Mike Merrill's project. He essentially like sold shares in himself. And then what people do with those shares, it's not sort of cash flow or anything. All that it does is he asks his shareholders to help him make life decisions. You know, should I buy this home or that home? And he actually, there was a big moment in his life when he, just he asked his shareholders whether he should marry his girlfriend that he was seeing at the time. So, and that was all doable without a blockchain. It does, you don't need a blockchain for this, but I think where blockchain makes it interesting is it more easily allows for emergent use cases, more possibility to design and build new kinds of sort of value transfer on this, because in this case, it was Mike Merrill's sort of own project and database and things he was doing with it. And, you know, no fan or shareholder of Mike Merrill could build the sort of new applications with his shareholders tokens, for example. So I just think it allows for more merchant use cases that, you know, isn't necessarily possible with current infrastructure. It's, it's kind of this, like the same thing you find with security, security tokens in the blockchain. It's like we are trading securities now and it works pretty well, but what could be possible if you have the, the security tokens that could be used in different things? Like, now you could use your Apple stock as collateral in issuing an automated loan, for example. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, um, Akil. Yeah, definitely. And actually, we wrote a FAQ for our dev. And uh, one question is why blockchain? That's definitely an important one. And there are like three reasons that we think are quite compelling. One is it's just really complex to do financial transactions outside of blockchain. And actually, I talked to Mike Merrill. He was also on the podcast with Eric. And it turns out that he spent most of his time basically building the infrastructure for people to invest and building all this platform. It took him a lot of energy. And a lot of that is not necessary when you are transacting on the blockchain. There, The infrastructure is ready and you can easily send funds around. And the second reason I think it's really important is that it makes it kind of really self-owned your personal token on the blockchain is really your own account that people can invest in and it's not actually controlled by anyone else and we see that with patreon already that some accounts get shut down because they're not politically aligned with the direction of the founders and that's something that cannot happen it's also a danger on the blockchain you could also have personal tokens for jihadists but it's definitely one potential advantage that no one can shut down your fundraising if you're on the blockchain and third the blockchain smart contracts allow you to play around with really more advanced models than what is just possible with regular stocks or regular financial instruments because you can program your personal token in whatever way you want. And one problem that we see a lot with personal tokens is that they don't have liquidity. And this is a problem that smart contracts, new smart contracts can solve. So your personal token is not just a rare digital asset but it is programmed in a very special way that makes it particularly suitable to be a personal token. Can you, can you talk more about liquidity in terms of who provides the liquidity? Yeah. Let me introduce this with the 
kind of status quo of personal tokens where someone just launches a token, there is a fixed supply, and then that person will have to think about how to distribute those. And usually they just post a few of those on an exchange, but you know, these personal token economies are too small for enough people to care for there actually to be coincidence of wants and an active market. So it will very rarely be the case that I have some tokens and I want to sell them and I'll find someone on the other side of the world who actually wants exactly that personal token because at least in the beginning of personal tokens, uh, probably it's just your personal community that will care about those. So we thought a lot about how to introduce liquidity and one solution is to actually not have the token creator sell her tokens, but rather to have a smart contract that buys and sells tokens. And that contract takes the money or most of the money that is used to buy tokens and puts it into a reserve. And that reserve can then be used to pay people back who want to sell their token again. This is an idea that Simon has uh, pioneered and it has also been used in the Banco protocol. And we basically adapted this to a personal token use case and changed it so that the reserve is partially accessible for the creator. So in fact, what happens in our contracts is that you send some money to this contract, it creates new tokens for you, and it keeps a lot of the money in its reserve so that you can sell your token back to the contract, but it also sends a small part of that reserve to the token creator so that you can actually, as a creator, get some funds out of this. But this is a, a, a kind of smaller percentage and so when someone now wants to sell their token back, they don't get the exact same money back from the contract, but rather a little bit less. The rest is sent to the creator as a way for that creator to benefit from people investing in her. Yeah. Around what use cases do you think are going to be most popular? Or is this especially like as a wedge in terms of making this more mainstream? I think there are like three categories and that's what we're seeing in this early stages of our own product as well, there are artists and there it's really nice and tangible. The value that they offer is often the artwork. And that's something everyone can easily imagine. Painter offering future work and paintings. And that's easy to understand value that definitely can appreciate. So it makes sense to invest in it and kind of believe that a future painting will be worth more uh, in the future than what the market thinks it's worth now. The second category we're seeing is the attention economy, YouTube influencers, fashion influencers, people who really need to also build their relationship with an audience. And as I said earlier, this token can be used as a powerful tool to strengthen that connection to your followers. Because when you have people liking your Facebook page, they're not as invested in you as they are when they own a stake in you. And so that's also uh, one of the reasons that uh, Stefan Benton, one of the first people to launch their personal token, launched his token. He wanted to have his followers think more about him. And he had realized that when he owned Bitcoin, he suddenly started thinking much more about Bitcoin. And so he launched Benton coin so that people would think more about him. And then I think the third category is freelancers and, you know, the independent workforce, people who have a lot of uh, expertise in a field and are kind of um, also tech savvy so they can already understand what a token is and sell their time or expertise or knowledge in a similar way that earn.com did it for uh, fixed payments. 
you can sell your email response and not just have it priced at a constant rate, but say, I will actually redeem one hour of my time or one email response for one token, even in the future. And so people who invest in my email response today, because they think that my knowledge will be really valuable in the future, uh, they can actually benefit from that. There's one sort of variation I'd like to see, and, I, and I've been wanting to just explore with that on your platform, um, Convergent, um, Akil, but I haven't had yet time to get around to it. But um, one of that is, is essentially a reverse attention economy, if I can explain that way. But it's essentially my time is scarce as Simon and my attention is scarce. And obviously everyone's attention is scarce. We only have a certain amount of hours in a day. And what I would want to do is for people to say like, hey, Simon, read this article or read that article or read this interesting article. And through that process, people then buy this token from me and then they use the token to say, hey, this is an important article. And then let's say there is like 20 people that decide this is the most important article. Then that would be like at the top of my feed for the day to say, Simon should read this because the people that care about me said I should read this or the people that at least want me to read it. I think let's say for someone like Vitalik, it's like, okay, it might be interesting to get his attention, maybe less so me and maybe less so others. But when you extrapolate this on like a grander scale, it essentially turns into a case where you, you see how the social media and social networks work today is there are those slots of attention on Facebook. There are the slots of attention on Twitter and I'm not being paid for, for looking at those ads, but now, what if Facebook and Twitter and Google and everyone can bid for those attention slots and I could just make money from it? That to me is like an exciting idea. Like I could just be reading Twitter all day and I could just be making money by just reading Twitter. And if my, if my attention is important, if the world cares about what I see, then my value will increase, you know, the value of my personal token. That, that's awesome. And this is an application we're definitely thinking about because you know, we have this trend going on that attention is becoming the currency of the internet. And maybe a single individual's attention is still not tangible enough and maybe it's still not valuable enough. But the moment you open that curated feed, and let's say it's not just you who can see the daily top five posts that were curated for you, but also all the people that follow you, that already becomes a really valuable resource to be listed on your public profile. So you could have that curated feed show up on your convergent profile, let's say, uh, the way that uh, you have your Twitter retweets on your profile. And to be on top of that, you need to pay some tokens and that will have a substantial value. I can guarantee you, Simon. Your mm. <laughs> Absolutely, because that's where you get start getting this sort of emergent behavior happening. And like you said, it's exactly valuable. Like let, let's put it this way: like let's say what Vitalik sees is valuable attention, then it's also valid for for other people to see what Vitalik sees as valuable attention. And that's exactly what when you look at it, what subreddits are. It's like people are congregating around similar topics or tags, but in this circumstance, you just have individual as this sort of focal point or group congregating point, essentially. It's like, oh, I, I actually do want to see what other people would like Vitalik to read, you know, so that, that creates this pockets of very interesting sort of gravity wells for information. 
Can, can we go back to the Mike Merrill example, who, who's been doing this for, for a decade? He's, he's the first and only. Uh, well, now we have some, some new people, but paint a picture of, of how exactly his sort of experience would be different if he did it in 2019, you know, on the blockchain instead of in t- uh, 2008. So Mike Merrill basically sold shares that are just on his database and they're um, not enforceable, of course. They are like basically just data points on his computer. And he spent a lot of time building that database. And he spent a lot of time building the interface for people to buy tokens and send money to him. And he had to kind of figure out a financial structure and um, deal with some regulatory issues as well. And so right now, all this work is in a way replaced by one click, which is deploy the token that has been open sourced and is ready to uh, for mainnet production. And you just have your own token. Suddenly it's there and all the infrastructure is taken care of. People can send stuff to can money, can send money to it and they can uh, get the token and you don't have to, you know, administer a server. And the regulatory issues are still um, there and they're still unsolved actually. And so this is something that blockchain does not just um, magically make disappear. Did he ever like sell additional shares? Like you would have maybe in a company, you would say like, okay, we're doing a new fundraising. We're issuing you shares to sell to investors. Or did he just do one single fundraise like a decade ago? I think he's selling shares continuously. And this is again, a big difference to what would be possible now in right now in a smart contract based personal token, the rules are very transparent for who can buy, when they can buy and how they can buy a token in your own database. Of course, you can kind of also easily fool your investors and change the rules. And I'm not sure in how far Mike Merrill actually changed his, his shares and his issuance. But I'm sure that he basically sets the rules for when they get sold and at what prices. And I think this is a, is a big advantage of personal tokens on the blockchain that it's transparent from the start what the rules of the game are. And I think the biggest value is just that all these things could be replaced by one-click solutions in a Web 2.0 manner. But I think the most important value here is just that it's like much more sufficient liquidity for a long tail of value tokens. And I think that's basically the more the sort of more important component here is to say you know if mike merrill's share trading there are people trading his shares but that's because he's the only one doing it if people are going to copy his way of doing this these things then if you have two million three million ten million people doing this there's not going to be a lot of liquidity for trading many of these shares if it just acts like a traditional exchange and i think the more the bigger value is that the blockchain allows us to have that automated liquidity from the start. And I think that will it's like help build up these smaller networks of value. And, and I think that that's the biggest change, I think, where if Mike was supposed to do it today or people like Mike, you would know that these um, smaller value tokens have liquidity built into them. How do you guys think about things like, you know, going back to the liquidity side, can one buy the entire market, move prices? You know, how, how do these prices move at all? Is there arbitrage potential? Who, who buys these tokens and why? How, how do you guys think about this? Yeah, so let's uh, take an example. I'm offering an exchange from my personal token, 
one hour of my full attention, whether it's for a meeting or help solving a problem, conference talk. And so there's this risk that someone might just buy up all my lifetime. And uh, so what these bonding curve tokens do is that they increase the price depending on how many people have already bought my token and how many tokens have already been issued. And it's really important to get this price increase right because otherwise it would be possible for someone to buy all of my tokens. But if they are expensive enough once most of my time is sold out or my time is really becoming scarce, then you can you can avoid this case. So in our case, we have a price curve. It's linear right now. It just increases linearly. And so whenever someone buys one hour of my time in the future, the next hour will be more expensive. And one could argue that for certain use cases, these price curves need to look more steep. And for example, for time, there might be a good case to make this price curve exponential because at some point, you know, you don't have any more hours. And so having another hour should basically cost infinity. And so we're experimenting with this right now. There are other services where I think it makes sense for the price to uh, kind of increase a little bit, but not much more. If it's an access token, for example, uh, someone who has a token can, uh, let's say, access my private you know, information feed or my private videos as a YouTuber, then it's not really sensible to make these tokens go up extremely. And rather, it doesn't cost me anything to provide an additional video to an additional viewer. The marginal cost is zero. So the marginal price should also be zero. Yeah, I think being able to hard code how the, the value of the token changes over time already improves a bit in terms of reducing manipulation of the price. But I think like any kind of you know, free trading token, you'll do find that you'll run into problems where it's still open or prone to manipulation. And the best you can do is to just mitigate it as best as possible. And that's why, you know, people have been doing research in specifically in personal tokens, like a convergence case where it uses bonding curves. Uh, people have started doing research on how to add in short selling so that price discovery is more natural, you know, so that, you know, it doesn't, go up and become too volatile and be, and then become unusable. So I, I, th I think as with anything else, if you start free trading it, you have to, you know, ideally design some systems to reduce manipulation of it. Uh, can you expand on that, Simon? I'm curious what you mean by this kind of manipulation, because my first instinct is to say, if there's this contract that always offers the token at a certain price, it, it can't really be more expensive or less expensive somewhere else? I think it would still be possible to corner markets, right? You could still, someone could still be malicious and that all that it would do is it would, it would just cost an attacker some money. So let's say, for example, if you take Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, it is, there is a certain dollar value in terms of attacking the chain. And if you're going to attack the chain, you're likely going to lose money by doing that or make a bit of money by, you know, doing double spin attacks against exchanges. But ultimately, if you have money, you can grieve people. In Bitcoin and Ethereum's case, you can just grieve Bitcoin and grieve Ethereum if you have money to throw away. So there will always be possible, at least in some cases, people go like, you know, it doesn't matter if it goes up exponentially. If I have a lot of money, I'm going to corner you 
I'm going to take all your personal tokens and you said there's a contract here where all your personal tokens amount to personal time that you have to give me. But I'm just buying them all, throwing away the money, just doing that just to make your life worse. And that is, I would would still see that that's possible, but you're not going to ultimately remove that. And I think like in any crypto economic system or or not even crypto economic, normal economics, your goal is to make sure you design systems where you reduce the likelihood of people doing these malicious attacks or at least increase the cost so much that it becomes sort of a scorched earth kind of thing. Like you have to destroy everything in order to make anything meaningful and then no one's going to do it. There has to be some sort of mutually assured destruction by manipulating it to that extent. But if at least the price goes up very high and you know that it will go up very high because it's hard coded in the contract, then that at least reduces some of that at very least. Right. And I guess the measure of last resort in the case of blockchain is forking. And in the case of personal tokens, it would be deserting because in the end, right now, these contracts are not really linked to any legal representation they're not wet law that's actually enforced in the court and so what's really getting traded here is a promise and even in the case of mike merrill and he's basically just built up this this trust in the markets over years that the token will actually influence decisions in his life and that's why people assign value to it and in the same way you know personal tokens i think will have this backdoor that at some point, if this thing doesn't work out and the creator says, sorry, I cannot even honor all these commitments, that creator can just walk away and basically desert on these promises. And then the token will crash and probably he can never use it again as a way to raise funds, especially if there's some kind of persistent reputation in the system. I think especially in the early days now, it's like we might see some of these things happen and it's all part of the learning curve, I guess. Absolutely. It's just really experimenting. And so the, 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 the nice thing about bonding curves is that they allow you to experiment at a very, very low volume. So right now in our platform, there are just like 10 euro invested on average in all these people. And so that's a nice way to play around. And already it feels like, it feels like a commitment for me. If someone sends me one of my personal tokens, even if they just bought them for 15 cents. I will actually make an appointment and book a calendar slot to make sure I honor it. That's something that's not to be underestimated, I think. When you put something on the blockchain and you kind of put a promise out there, it does feel like something real. What do you think about edge cases like the um, Jeff Bezos case where a billionaire doesn't earn much income but lives off cheap debt using his assets as collateral? (laughs) I mean, I'm not entirely sure how that fits into like a personal tokens case. Merely because I think if you are someone that is very popular, or like let's say your value is already very high, like you'll have ways to use your wealth to get what you want, whether it's now a personal token or selling a billion dollars every year to fund Blue Origin. It's like you'll find a way to get things done. The concern with you know income sharing broadly, it, you know, for a percentage of future revenues is that yeah, what, what if people get you know Larry Ellison Gates? What if people get rich but don't make any revenue? And so do the, do the investors see anything from that? I think this is probably also one of the points and why people have sort of 
critique the idea of personal tokens because they imagine it to just be a revenue share token. And I think it's substantially broader use case. Like it can be for attention, it could be time, it could be a work unit, it could be art, it could be many different things. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I am Simon and I'm going to share my future income to my shareholders. And I don't even think that's the best model, to be honest, because you are ultimately restricted by that person. So, for example, if you had a personal token that was only shareholders in a certain person and you would be capable of receiving income from what they produce, then what you end up with is just extremely high risk because it could be like if that person gets killed in a bus tomorrow, then the whole share tanks tomorrow. It's like, it's, it, it, it's not the best model. And, and immediately, yes, to some extent, I, I think some people have said like this feels like an indentured servitude if you're only doing income, income share agreements. Uh, to me, it's more interesting that when people use these things that could potentially extend past their own personal selves, like building a community around a person. And this is where things like the Vitalik attention model becomes interesting because yes, Vitalik, Vitalik doesn't have to be alive for people to still be interested in sharing ideas and information related to Vitalik. Like that's still an interesting way. So even if, you know, he would be in a, Dying a bus crash tomorrow, people would still hold his personal token. But if it was a revenue share token, people would not. So I think that does change the possibilities more. And I think the revenue share idea just it it is the first use case a lot of people think about because that's how people relate to how companies work and how organizations work. And I think it's it's probably much broader than that. I think I agree with this. And actually, what we see in existing crowdfunding platforms is also often that the supporters don't do it necessarily for the financial gain. First of all, most of them, there are no financial gains, but a bigger part of the motivation is actually to support a creator. Let's say on Patreon, when you support an artist, you really want to help that person. And maybe you've seen that person's work and you yourself actually appreciate the work that they do. And you like having access to that work or being in the inner circle of that artist in some way. And that's the primary motivation for you to support that artist. Now with blockchain, there's this additional component that if that artist actually makes it and becomes super famous, you're going to see a part of that upside as a supporter. Um, but that's probably maybe 50% of the, of the motivation because that, as Simon said, is a risk uh, game. And what you immediately get by investing in someone is this nice feeling of having helped that person and actually having the option of receiving something back. There's a great unexpected success. I think another interesting model to, to tie to that, and I think the way people should view personal tokens is, is like that, which is the, it's first and foremost a support mechanism in many people. But then if it's, a, if it's a success, if it, that, then it's great. And if it's not a success, it was a donation. Like, and many people already do patronage already with Patreon and subscription services. And people are sort of duplicating this model into other areas as well. And the one good example is Lambda School, which is essentially saying, look, you can come and get an education for free. And if you then go afterwards and you get a job that has a minimum 
salary, I think it's like $50,000 a year. Maybe it's more, I don't recall. But if, if you, if you get a job that is above the minimum salary and we will help you get that job, then there's a revenue share agreement for a few years. That's a great sort of funding model, which is you're first doing something to support people. And then you're incentivized to make sure those people succeed. But if they don't succeed, you gave someone an education. And that is, at minimum, a very good thing you did for someone. Totally. So what do you think about, from a regulation perspective, how does this happen? Like, how do you ensure what you buy is what you actually think it is? You know, could it be classified as security instead of utility? How do you think about this from a regulation perspective? This is a topic that is actually really hard to navigate. And, I mean, no one knows what's actually legal here. So I'm not going to say anything as a lawyer and uh, as legal advice, but the idea in our project is that this is a kind of non-binding promise that you make. And you basically post on public database that you're going to do something. Namely, you're going to exchange a certain service in the future in exchange for this token that you just minted and that you just created. It's possible and very much encouraged in our platform to update the terms. And if you want to change, there's a transparent process for changing the price, changing the service that you're going to offer, or taking the whole economy down and saying, sorry, guys, I'm not into it anymore. And we think this is a way to make it much more like a non-enforceable promise and therefore not a financially regulated security. Um, rather, it is like a Twitter post or like a, a, a kind of more formal, you know, Facebook post that you share with your audience and the value of the token will represent the trust in that promise. So in our case, also, there is no KYC. You can just launch your token with nothing but an Ethereum account. And in the end, the markets will find out what kind of promises, what kind of token creators are actually trustworthy, what kind of token creators actually treated their token like an asset and like a real value. And that's going to filter then uh, the tokens that have value from those that don't have any value. And so we don't think it's necessary to impose a lot of restrictions and regulatory bottlenecks here but rather the markets will automatically figure out who is you know, valuing and, and honoring that token as a promise rather than a financial instrument. Makes sense. What do you think about derivatives and will people be able to short people in, in your view or should they be able to? I, I think so. <laughs> I, I think that's part of the appeal to some extent. And that's one of the reasons why I was also interested in the idea of personal tokens is because in some circumstances people only change for public benefit. Let's say like very famous politicians or people in power only change once their own lives start having, it starts um, their own lives being materially affected by let's say corruption or things like that. And so a lot of the times these in this in politics, people stay in power um, without any material effects to their wealth, right? But if there was a way to say, like, look, like, if, if I don't believe in this person anymore as being a useful public servant, and you could then, for example, say, sell their shares in that person, that is a signal that works tomorrow. Um, it does not wait several years for these things to take effect. And that, that could be a meaningful way to 
just send more signals to the market to say like these are the things that the public don't agree in anymore and i think that could be useful but it is it is both good and bad i would say you know you, you don't i think there needs to at least be some ways to protect from people maliciously short selling obviously but you know at the end of the day the markets are reasonably okay i guess <laughs> i'd say that there's also actually no way to prevent that once you have a blockchain token that's actually tradable uh, yes you can make derivatives and so it would be hard to prevent shorting and i think it's just part of the game and when there's investing there's shorting as well could you speak to the infrastructure that needs to be built out for this to be feasible at scale we sort of saw you know what happened with with icos in terms of the free-for-all there but how do we prevent that from happening with personal security securitized tokens yeah, there's still a long way to go just on the very fundamental infrastructure level because of transaction times, gas fees, and the Ethereum blockchain that we're using is actually not ready for mass adoption. And so right now when you buy a token on our platform, it takes like half a minute or one minute for you to see that token. And that's a user experience most people just don't accept. So we're really limited to the few people that are patient enough and curious enough to play around with this already. Uh, but on the token contract side, there are also quite a few challenges still. Because, for example, this kind of token that we use that provides instant liquidity has quite an involved structure that makes it very hard to prevent front-running attacks. And so there's a few solutions to this, but they're all making it much more complex. And all of that on this still very nascent Ethereum infrastructure uh, kind of gets the system to its limit. And so I think we'll still see uh, a couple of years before this is actually really smooth. You know, as is the case in general with the blockchain space, there's a lot of scaling and scalability solutions that are being worked on. And I, I wouldn't see this class of application being sort of specifically unique that it needs its own scaling solution. So, you know, whatever is being built now is, will be useful for personal tokens. So, you know, it's just a matter of time to get these things to a decent level of maturity, but it's, it works now and there's a decent enough space to play, to play with these ideas. So to make sure that when scaling happens that we've mitigated all the issues and make sure we can build these new economies for people. Anything else you think that our, our audience should, should know about? I think what's been interesting is there has been commentary from people that have given the idea critique. And in, in many ways, I do think it's fair to say like, hey, like, you know, this could be a way to potentially enslave people if it's done poorly. And so I, I think it's important that as we go out with these ideas to keep in mind that what we're doing here is to empower people first and foremost and also be extremely mindful about the ways this can be, this can or could be used to manipulate people. So I, just to say, like, I, th I think that when people give these kind of critiques, that it is valid. And, but first and foremost, like, let's see if we can create new ways for people to make a living. And if that works, then I think we're making a good impact on the world. Yeah, I want to actually add on the aspect of critiques that are very commonly raised and often these critiques are based on a partial understanding of the current state of the art when it comes to personal tokens but then you know our responses to these critiques become pretty complicated and technical sometimes and so i can see how for 
uh, new user in the blockchain space, it's really hard to wrap one's head around what a personal token does and how it really works. And so I think as with all cryptocurrency, really, the first step is to kind of get skin in the game and, and get invested. And that's what really gets you to spend time on it and understand it. And so it's really easy now to have your own personal token. And it basically doesn't cost you anything except for some time. And then in that time when you set it up and you play around, that's, that's the way that you understand cryptocurrency in general and personal tokens in particular when they are in these advanced forms and shapes that we see now. So I, I'd encourage people to experiment and, and try things out rather than reading and uh, listening too much. So I think that's a, that's a great place to close. Maybe, maybe last question for you get to is what's your sort of request for experimentation or request for projects? That, where do you want to see people experiment and where do you two yourself expect to experiment in, in the future at Convergent and, and what you're working on, Simon? We are experimenting with all different kinds of extensions and use cases for personal tokens right now because we have this infrastructure for you to launch it. Now it's basically on the creator to give it value. So the creators need to have ways for making their audience and their markets believe that this token is actually useful for something. And this is something that software can really help with, I think. So, for example, I'm offering an hour of my time, but it's, it's still hard to understand what this really means. So one extension could be that you have an actual calendar, kind of a Calendly clone and instead of booking an appointment just like that, based on invitation, you can book it with a token. And this is like almost a separate application. And if you make it in a way that every person can easily integrate that into their personal website or social media, then that makes this token much more understandable and therefore hopefully valuable. Another extension that we experimented with and would love to see more is what we call backstage. Um, that would be an access control plugin for your personal website where your personal token holders can see more of your content and maybe the stuff that you wouldn't put out publicly because it's more intimate or just for your inner circle. And you would say, I um, make it really easy for people who have my token to access that. And that's another nice use case extension. And uh, I think there are more directions that you can think this in and, and these are things that we want to experiment with i think one of the things to also keep in mind is that you know personal tokens or the idea of adding additional layers of transaction in things that might not necessarily require economic transactions could be sort of a hurdle for people you know that the idea of saying like hey do you just want to send me an email just send me an email. Why, why, why am I not paying $10 to send me an email, for example, or $10 equivalent value? So I think what would be interesting is, you know, to ask questions about where these kind of ideas would work in new ways that aren't, I feel, this is, that doesn't necessarily feel obvious or where we don't necessarily expect economic transactions to take place. And that is purposefully vague because I, I think that is still areas that we need to explore. You know, I think the reason why Bitcoin works is because it fulfilled a niche that other currencies couldn't do at the time and why certain economic models work because of the fact that they allow new kinds of systems to work. So I think it would be interesting to say like, look, 
here's a personal token economy, but let's not use this to like pay each other in each other's personal tokens for things we would just pay each other in fiat dollars. Let's think about ways and this could be used above and beyond what we normally think of as economic transactions. And I have no idea what that really is, but I think it's worth exploring. And usually when I just sort of put advice like that out there, it's just to say, like, get weird, like figure out what would be weird. And that's that's one way to figure out if this is useful or not. Being weird, I think that's a perfect place to perfect place to close. Thank you both for, for coming on the podcast. Can't wait for, for more people to experiment with personal tokens. Talk to you both soon. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.